0: Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live, our life. And this week, coming to us from the Chicago area, is Hirsch Rapun. And I normally know that you're not supposed to say this about a guest. You're not supposed to say they're funny before they come on, and especially on a a show about death. But I don't care. I think being funny and being nice are tantamount to angelic, and so this man achieves both. Um, I was actually a guest on his show, and that's how we met. And I will strongly encourage my listeners to head over to Spotify or whatever their favorite place is to listen to a podcast and check out Truth Tastes Funny. He is a person in both comedy and advertising, and he's also a stand-up comedian. Above all, as a brand storyteller, Hirsch operates on one simple principle, sell the truth. And so with no further delay, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Wow, that's great. Thank you for that introduction
1: and, uh, and for the pressure that it puts on me. But that's all right. That's all. right. But I do agree. I do agree with uh, with your assessment of, of, you know, the place of humor and and all of that. I I don't know how I would how I would converse
0: about any serious topic without humor
1: being part of the equation.
0: Yeah. And uh, I mean, your biography is outstanding. And by the way, did I get it right that you're in the Chicago area? Yeah, I'm in Iowa City. Cool. So actually, I would love to start with comedy. Uh, My favorite thing in the entire world to do is see stand-up comics. I support local, I support uh, international, and I support, of course, domestic, all types of comedy. I love it all. I go regularly to clubs and all that. So when did you ever do your very, very, very first stand-up performance? And can you kind of tell us about that part of your career? My first stand-up performance
1: was in... 1992 I was in my early 20s at the time and I went to I was living in New York which was obviously a great place if you wanted there were no like open mics and stuff it was just you went to a club and you put your name on a list and you waited until you know you got your turn and the more you showed up the earlier they would put you up as long as you were getting better but there was no like make-believe kind of practice show or anything you it was a real show and being New York the clubs were open till like three in the morning or so. So, you know, you could, you could wait around till, till two or two thirty, and there, and there might still be, there still might be, you know, a crowd. So it was kind of a amazing, you know, amazing setup. And I, and I, uh, through a friend of mine, I got to get on the list at, um, at, uh, at the comic strip on the Upper East Side. And, um, And I went in there and and I waited and I did like everybody else. And then the guy said to me, you're next, you're next. And I was about to go up and I didn't even have a lot of material. I was going to get five minutes and I figured, I figured foolishly, you know, for me, it was more about the courage to go up, but I figured foolishly that I could improvise jokes because I'm so funny and I could do some impressions and I would five, what's five minutes? You know, I've been, I've been funny for 23 years. Why would I? Why would I need to? Why would I need to <laughs> yeah. write anything? And so I'm about to go up, and uh, <laughs> and the manager of the club and the manager of the club puts his hand on my chest and stops me. And Eddie Murphy walks in, and <laughs> and does a drop in, and proceeds to to go on the stage and kill for 45 minutes. And I and I it has got to be like 2:15 in the morning by the time he's oh my he's God. done, and and then the guy says, okay, you'll go up as soon as Eddie finishes <laughs> as soon as Eddie finishes And um, and I, I'm about to go through this like through the archway into the into the uh, the room and Richard Lewis, the comedian Richard Lewis, is is standing there. no he didn't go on he, he had already gone on he was just watching he was watching Eddie. But he he was leaning against the doorpost in in front of me with his hand on his with his like fingers on his forehead like he does and he oh said uh, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and and I went and did it and I did some silly things and and, and I mean had I had an amazing five minutes, um, it would not have really mattered very much <laughs> and, and in those days people didn't. People, did, people didn't have, you know, cell phones and, you know, they weren't taking pictures and tweeting and doing all that stuff. They were just mesmerized and then stunned. Because this was Eddie Murphy and this was, you know, uh, the, the, the 1992. So it was like, you know, and and I had met Eddie Murphy when I when I was 16. I was in Israel for a year of uh, of uh, studying abroad. And, um, he was filming, uh, best defense was the movie that he was filming best defense at with Dudley Moore. And, um, and we heard that he was in town and he was filming a movie and he was at a hotel. And I, I called the hotel and spoke to his manager and they said, uh, yeah, you know, it would probably be nice for him to have some American fans, you know, say, hi, he goes to, he goes to set at like 6 a.m. Come to the hotel at 6 a.m. We went a bunch of us to the hotel at six a.m. or we went probably at five. We waited, 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 waited. Finally, came down, and got his autograph, and talked to him and met him. It was fun. It was funny, but you know, I didn't eat, talk to him that night, and, and nor would I have brought that up. He was very nice when I was sixteen and and met him, but um, but yeah, so that was my trial by fire, and I and I and I kind of bombed, although. You know, I think that the fact that I did it was was more important than anything. And and that and that I and that I went up and then I learned that I have to write. Then I learned I have to write. And um, and I started writing characters and, you know, voices and things like that.
0: Technically speaking you could tell people that Eddie Murphy, that you closed an Eddie Murphy show. Eddie Murphy opened for me. I've I've never used that. I've never used that, that line, but Eddie
1: Murphy opened for me.
0: Also the Richard Lewis thing is pretty cool. So that's awesome. Um, and um, it's cool that you were in New York city and all that. And because of the time constraints on the show, I, I, I'm going to jump like a huge topic over, but, um, let's get like serious just for a little bit about, uh, life and death and philosophy and all that. Um, So I'm going to kind of set it up for our audience that you're a family man and you have a great family. And I, you know, I follow you online and I see a lot of your posts and you're just like a very gregarious, nice, kind individual. I'm curious, uh, along the great calamity that is life, um, what was like one of your more serious moments and how did that change you and help you? Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us and it's free. That's m i k e y o p p dot com. Thanks.
1: The most serious moment was when my father died, and I was twenty nine and uh, or twenty eight, turning twenty nine, and um, and my my first wife was was pregnant with our daughter, and um, it was you know he had not taking the greatest care of himself. He had diabetes. He was always struggling to kind of, you know, avoid the the sweets and the things he's not supposed to indulge in. And, uh, and it just kind of ate away at him to, to where he didn't, you know, he suffered a stroke and, uh, and was in the hospital and was in a coma for a couple, for like a week or two. But, you know, it, I don't even think at that moment that I registered how traumatic it was. It was because, of course, it's traumatic. I I was young and he was he was young. And, you know, my mom was going to be, you know, lost her her partner in in life and my sisters lost it. We were all very close as a family. So it was I think it was such a shock that I and then here I was, I had like two little boys and a girl on the way and was already overwhelmed. I was like overwhelmed with life. All that stuff was a lot to have going on at such a young age. Um, So I think I, I, you know, I think to whatever extent I handled it, I think it was it was very, very serious. And it also did make me think about for the first time, really what happens when somebody dies, you know, my uncle's, my, my, my father's brother, my uncle, who, who, thank God, is still still alive. He's about ninety six um, now, um, and I remember asking him, "Well, you know, what do we, what in Judaism, what's our understanding of what happens?" Right, like somebody dies. Obviously, the physical body isn't isn't there anymore, and he said. He said, "You know, our understanding is that the soul is, you know, during this time of mourning, the shiva period of seven days of, of mourning, and that's the, the point at which I was in. So, you know, our understanding is that that the the soul hovers close to the to the body and to where the body was and the home and all of that because it's in a state of confusion." And I said, "Well, all." you know, if the brain is gone. If technically the brain is, is, is no longer functioning. How, what, how does the soul think? Like what's the language? What does it talk? Right. You watch these movies where ghosts speak in English. How do they, how is that, how is that accomplished? Right. And, um, and he said, uh, he said, it's not, it's not language as we understand it. It's a tether he said in the sense that everything that impacts the soul while we are alive on Earth registers in the soul. So, you know, there doesn't have to be a language. There doesn't have to be. They're not, you know, telling us something in English. It's, it's the best we can understand it is that the soul exists. The soul continues and it is impacted, which means that, you know, if, if you loved somebody or or were somebody's you know parent or part of their uh dna you know that you would you would still presumably feel that connection as you would to the home and the environment and the atmosphere that that your body was impacting on your soul for you know 70 years whatever it might be
0: do you live your life according to the tenets of that wisdom
1: yeah i think i think i i think i have although i think we tend to humanize all the elements that we don't understand which makes which makes sense you know we're i do think of i still think of my and my both my parents have have passed um now and i and i do think of them as being cognizant you know i don't because i can't relate to the the impacted soul thing. That's a lot of work. I mean, you know, that's, that's like, uh, you know, there are filmmakers and, and, and writers who can, who can kind of, uh, you know, do that quite well. But I, but I, I find it a struggle to, to conceptualize it that way. So I, so, but I do, but I do feel, you know, listening to your show, um, you know, where you had the guest who had the, uh, the pre-birth experience Christian Sunberg, Yeah. Christian. Yeah. So I, I totally like that to me makes so much sense. The idea that there are, and also that there is a way of messaging us from beyond because it's, and, and, and how it's accomplished. I mean, how is anything accomplished? How are, how are, are, you know, you go back to like, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, the biology or the human biology, any biology, How is that accomplished, right? So it's pretty, pretty complex.
0: I want to attach the Eddie Murphy story to what you just explained. I imagine as you're sitting there in New York about to get on for your first performance and then Eddie Murphy walks in, you're not only starstruck, but you're also like, oh, he's where I want to be. And I'm here now. This is like palpable. This is realistic. I'm curious now that you're 20 years removed from that experience or maybe 30, um, how how much is like ambition and goal orienting versus like where you are now and how content you are? Like, how would you explain that to your children and to like, I'm, I'm like 10 years younger than you to just to anyone. Like, how is that process for you?
1: Yeah. Um, it's really, it really is, uh, changing for me. I think you're absolutely right at that. At that moment, all I could feel was, you know, I want to be, in a different place. I want to be in this place. I want to be and that, and that, and that held true every step of the way. Like I was, I was in a, in the bar at, you know, at uh, Stand Up New York. I remember, which was another club that I, that I did quite frequently as I, I was starting out and at this bar were, uh, you know, Dennis Leary, Colin Quinn, um, you know, guys like that, Dave Attell, Dave Chappelle, Louis CK. And those guys are more or less, my age, you know, uh, uh, Louis CK, maybe, I don't know. They were, we were, I w- wasn't that big an age difference if at all. And uh, the other guys were a little older and I, and I'm like looking at those guys and I'm going, okay, I have to be literally in that spot. I got to get to that spot. But somehow my priorities were different. So, you know, they, they were either not married, not having kids, not observed. I was still res- observant, you know, Jewishly, to the point where I wouldn't work on the Sabbath. It was a big handicap. I joke that that the two most important things in my home were laughter and not becoming a comedian. <laughs> it's like you're 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 so funny and you 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 know and you you can write and you can perform and you can sing and you can dance and you can do all these things, but you can't work on Shabbos. You can't work on the Sabbath. And I, I was going to write a book. I started writing a book. I haven't finished it, but I started writing a book called "Movie Stars Don't Work on Shabbos." I basically felt at the time that I was making this decision to do whatever I was going to do within the confines of my religious and family commitments, and but I didn't do that with like a like with with a real happiness about it. Um, I did. I was like, okay, well, this is the hand I've been dealt or this is the commitment I've made. And so I'll have to figure it out. And so I would always look at these people who are unbridled in their pursuit of their dreams in comedy or entertainment. And I would feel like I had to settle for something a little bit different.
0: Well, that really resonates with me. And I've, I'm starting to see that about my own life that like where some people I know didn't get the family, didn't do X, they got Y. And meanwhile, I don't want y at the expense of my family ex. Right. I'll never know. You know, I'm already here. I'm already at this intersection of the decisions I've made. And actually, speaking of decisions we've made, I hope my mother-in-law, who sometimes listens to these, isn't offended by the following phrasing of the question, but why and when did you give up the orthodox stick?
1: <laughs> did you call it schtick?
0: I did, just to be funny to my mother-in-law. Release this episode Saturday. You won't <laughs> have to worry about it. Oh uh,
1: Yeah, well, my sisters are are orthodox. I mean, I'm very connected to to my faith I, I, I think what what made so your question was was what made me, what made me decide to kind of loosen up on the Orthodox yeah so when when would be when I was like 32 and I was getting divorced from my first wife and the the divorce didn't have anything to do with religious observance per se it was that we were very young when we got married we clashed quite a bit i just saw the writing on the wall that you know we 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 were not happy and it didn't seem like the things we were doing having a lot of kids and you know trying to trying to get along but you know it felt like the whole thing was very constricting and i think when i decided that i didn't want that it was better for my kids and we had three kids together and we were married 10 years when I realized that it was better for my kids to go through the, the difficulty of a divorce, but have two parents who could still find happiness than to be, uh, around parents who were always going to be worsening in their relate, you know, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. It's the wrong match. It's only going to get worse. So I figured it, w- it was, but that, that stepping into myself was where I was like, yeah, you know, I, I could be, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little constrained overall. I feel like some, I've never felt entirely comfortable with all of these observances and restrictions and limitations. Um, and then, you know, when I, when I met my, my wife, my current wife, who was not Jewish when we met um and i i was still doing all the things that i would do and she was interested in judaism and she would explore those things as well but the the clash with orthodoxy with the attitudes of you know the the the, the orthodox needs for people to you know to to be so restrictive i i just couldn't I was going the other way. You know, I couldn't say to her, I need you to do all these different things because I couldn't really say that I wanted to do a lot of them. So, uh, so it was at that time and I kind of started gravitating toward a more relaxed, uh, uh, lifestyle, although still respecting, you know, my ex-wife and her, her observances and how my kids were observing and, not trying to influence them one way or another and saying, you don't have to do this or you don't have to do that, you know? Um, And, uh, and I think we're, we're very happy with how our three kids together have, have grown up and matured and made, you know, decisions for themselves. And, you know, so, so I think in the end, she remarried, she had, she had two more kids. I, I remarried. We have two, two girls. So it's, you know, I think that, you kind of know in your system what feels honest to you. And that's the best barometer you can use, not the fallout, not the relationships that may be strained, not the judgment that people are almost certainly going to have, but the peace within you, which goes Mike back to your um, statement about, uh, about the goals that we have professionally. Sometimes I, I never really resented anyone else, but I would beat myself up for a long time for what doing what I perceived as as settling. Right. But I still performed. I still wrote. I wrote movies that got produced. I, I appeared in. I appeared on in television. I did comedy clubs all over the place. So I did I did do those. You know, it's not like I sat in a box, but I didn't go big. In the sense that I didn't, I didn't, you know, make comedy the single most important thing in my life. And like you said, I, I wouldn't change that now. But now I've realized that a lot of the work that I did with brands and, and helping brands be, you know, be uh, find themselves honestly and find their voice and, you know, sell the truth. And that whole thing, none of that stuff happened by accident. I became known for that stuff because I was good at it and I liked it. So yeah. You know, doing the doing the when I started doing my Truth Tastes Funny podcast, I was writing a stage show cabaret show called Truth Tastes Funny, which which I will still do, although now I think maybe I'll have a following from from the podcast that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. But but I, I do often look at 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 those people who had put all that stuff first and did all the career stuff, boom, 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 boom. And then they, they look around and they didn't do the family stuff or they didn't do it wholeheartedly. And now they are, now they are too stuck to kind of even change or to find it or to do it. Or it's just kind of, you know, a little bit, a little bit incomplete. And I feel like, well, I'm really blessed. I have, fortunately that complete picture and I'm doing it kind of in reverse. Now I'm, now I'm in really, really super high gear on my career.
0: And, uh, you know, and that is, you know, where I'm at. That's incredible. And that's, it's, you're so good at explaining it all. And I am curious, you call yourself a brand storyteller. I understand what that means through the context of knowing you, but how would you explain that to someone on an airplane? I would say to somebody, You know, I I use brand storyteller because it
1: does evoke the two elements that are going to need to be explained. In other words, they're not going to say, oh, brand storyteller. Great. You know, awesome. They're going to say, oh, what is what does that mean? You work with brands. You kind of tell their stories. And, you know, I for a long time, I would say I was a creative. That's that is technically someone who's a copywriter. Is a creative, but the other the other thing that I realized was I never worked in house at an agency. I never had one single title that limited me to you know. And 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 for a while I was like, well, how do I explain to people that I do stand up comedy and I sometimes write ads and I sometimes write press releases or pr you know do pr for clients or 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 uh, or brands and sometimes I I write their you know their entire you know image. Uh, portfolio of what they, of how they present themselves. It's like, you know, I realized that these things are all me. That's why I what didn't become Eddie Murphy because I became me. And I, and so, and so, you know, if I had tried to become Eddie Murphy, I probably wouldn't succeed at that because he's already Eddie Murphy. So, so I, I, I ultimately became me, which is, which is a hybrid uh, creative thing person who uses my like I use my imagination and my ability to respond and to hear what people are saying to me to give them, uh, you know, ways to express their their brand personality. But I feel like that those conversations that I have about about who his brand is and what it you know, that that's why I'm starting this new uh, podcast called Yes Brand, where I will have business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs come on and talk to me about their brands and tell me about their successes and their failures and maybe where they're stuck or they can't get to the next level and have fun. But always with the jokes, you know, like the jokes that I throw out when when you came on my show, you know, the the jokes that I throw out in any circumstance are going to be my reaction. I'm going to think of something funny or that attempts to be funny and sometimes it'll be funny and sometimes it won't and that also can be funny. But it doesn't mean that every every campaign is funny. That's the other part. You know, it means
0: that humor is a part of the life process. Well, that's a great quote in itself. Humor is a part of the life process. I have two very, very quick questions and then I want to give you the floor. What is like, in your estimation, one of the funniest movies of all time? So you don't have to say the funniest, but one of them. And then also, who is a currently performing comic that you still admire and would recommend people check out?
1: Funniest movie...
0: Okay, yeah, there is no funniest movie. I have to go with Blazing Saddles,
1: and you know who I who I admire, who I just saw in in concert here in Iowa City, Mark Maron. And I wasn't a fan. He started out a little before me. I actually did a show with him at Boston University in oh man, I don't know when I when we were both in our he was in his late twenties, I was in my mid twenties, and uh, but it was like mispromoted in that there was some big campus event. It was a Saturday night. There was a big campus event, and the promoter was new to promoting comedy. And, and we both got paid $450 to do the show, so we got paid either way. But there was, there was like literally no one showed up, no one in this big auditorium. But I started listening to his podcast, and then I became very into his, his comedy and his point of view. And, and my wife and I went to see him. Uh, at the Angler Theater here in Iowa City a few weeks ago, and he he was phenomenal.
0: Cool. Well, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. To end the show, as you know, I always just let people kind of give their peaceful message to the world. So, what would you like to say to my audience? Okay, I want. I have two things I want to say. First, I want to say that I read your book,
1: Too True to Be Good, and I loved that book. I was I was irritated, and I was uncomfortable, and I was uh, at times. Uh, just queasy but i read it all over my summer vacation where we went away to 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 my uh my sister-in-law's uh lake house and was like had time to read and i read the whole book i, I couldn't put it down and so uh you know kudos on that so i just wanted to, to let you know and knowing you a little bit better and knowing a little more about you i see a lot of things in the book that you know make sense where they came from you know listening to your to your podcast and some of your guests so very very cool thank you thanks so much my message is all about positronics what i what i call positronics we have this chain reaction that happens and that is desire you know people will tr- inflame us and we or 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 gaslight us or just cry out you know it's really a cry out for for not just attention but for love right these crazy people <laughs> these people out there who say all this hateful stuff who tell all these ridiculous, painful, hurtful lies Are ju- what they really are missing is love. And we're not going to solve the problems of the world by giving them love. But we certainly can improve things by putting love out there and opening our hearts and opening our minds to all the, all the possibilities that your guests talk about on, on, on this show about what could happen after you die is a really good example of open mindedness. But we also should take that same open mindedness and think about, you know, what happens when you're alive. And I think I think that's, That's the message. What happens when you're alive? You know, well, let's try to make that the most pleasant and loving and fulfilling experience we can and give the fear a rest. I would propose that we address all of our fears, biases, prejudices, and judgments in the afterlife. (laughs) Let's, (laughs) Let's save it for the afterlife
0: yeah I love it I agree I think that's very uh, very profound and it's great advice and also yeah it's true there's not actually like a hurry to address it and then if you were to die and it wasn't even there then it would have been a waste anyway again everyone his name is Hirsch Rappoon and he is located in Iowa City but he's all over the internet Um, there will be extensive notes for how to find him and his great show Truth Tastes Funny again thank you so much for taking time to come on our show thank you for being exactly who you are and for being in the universe that I share with you and uh, it's just amazing that thanks to technology and our passions we were able to meet and share podcasts so um, thank you again thank you to our beautiful wonderful audience and we will see you soon